Hi folks. Nobody expects the history of a prison to be cheerful, but the currently abandoned Holmesburg prison in Philadelphia has a past more nightmarish than most. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Christina Vespiris, who teaches communication as an assistant professor at USC Annenberg and has a background in molecular and cellular biology. Her new book, Skin Theory, Visual Culture in the Post-War Prison Laboratory, shines a light on the unethical, cruel, and racially biased medical tests performed on prisoners at Holmesburg by Dr. Albert Kligman, and it explores how these tests help create the modern dermatology industry. I'm not going to lie, it's disturbing subject matter, but I think it's important precisely because of that. Some stories need to be told, even if they're painful. Let's get started. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you're listening to Abandoned America. Christina, thank you so much for being here with me. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to talk about your book here. I think it's going to be a really great opportunity for people to learn about the Holmesburg and the experiments that you're talking about. But also, I mean, just congratulations on finishing your book. I know what a huge accomplishment that is. One side note, too, I had a friend when I told her that I was talking to you and doing this episode, she was really excited to read your book. So yeah, thank you very much for your time and for being here with us. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the book with you as well. And thank you for your kind words about it. There was a lot of research that went into making this book. And so I'm just excited, very happy, very grateful that you are allowing me to share it with your audience. Oh, I'm really happy to do so. This book is not what I would really call like a beach read. Right. It's definitely a pretty academic look at the subject, but also it's a pretty grim and disturbing subject. And with that, I'd kind of like to give a little bit of a content warning to people that are listening to this that, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about unethical medical testing on people's skin, it's it's grim. So, you know, just be aware of that as you're going into this. But, you know, I also am somebody that kind of, you know, a lot of my work deals with uh, grim subjects and including my photography of Holmesburg, in fact. And I feel like it's really important to talk about it and be aware of it and kind of make sure these things don't happen again. So I guess to start here, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and what drew you to this subject? Sure thing. So my background is actually in the life sciences. I spent almost a decade working in laboratory science before I decided to do a career change and start studying scientists themselves instead of actually doing the science myself. And I came into this project actually not interested in really history of medicine so much. I was looking at direct-to-consumer advertisements that pharmaceuticals would make. But in order to understand the history of that, I had to read up on the history of medicine and reading up on the history of medicine. Now, that's a grim subject because in the United States, at least the pervasive use of captive populations in medical experiments was surprising to me because this was not something that I had learned much about when I was training to become a researcher. So it was one of those things that the the surprise about the subject that led me to study experiments in medicine in the context of captivity. And I landed on the post-war prison because around this time, 60s, 70s, 80% of our phase one clinical trials were being conducted in prisons. So if you want to think about the rise of our pharmaceutical industry, you can't think about it separate from the prison industrial complex. When you talk about the history of testing on captive populations, you're talking about people that were slaves. You're talking about things like the Fernald State School, Quaker Oats experiments where they fed children in a science club at a state school radioactive oatmeal. There's uh, J. Marion Sims, who's the father of gynecology, which I mean, that really would turn your hair white when you read about it. It's absolutely appalling. And What was it that made Holmesburg specifically one that you thought that this is one that I really want to do a deep dive into and and write a book about? I looked at Holmesburg, um, and again, to reference Acres of Skin, the author Alan Hornblum had called the research program over there a sort of 
Kmart of medical experiments. And I would say that's a pretty accurate statement because the primary investigator, Albert Kligman, who ran the whole show, he did a lot of different kinds of experiments, some of which fell way outside of his area of expertise. He was a dermatologist. He was trained in, in fungal research, but then he would go and do things like experimenting with uh, chocolate and seeing if eating chocolate would lead to, you know, acne breakouts. Or he would take commissions from the U.S. Army to experiment on uh, psychopharmaceuticals or psychoactive drugs that would sort of render subjects prone to suggestion or truth telling. And so these are not things that would be considered the purview of his expertise, but his experiments really ran the gamut. And so I was interested in his research mainly because it was kind of shocking what he could get away with doing in that prison. Right. I mean, it does seem like he kind of was just like, oh, I have a weird idea. Let's see what happens when I try it on captives. So the history of Holmesburg, I think maybe a lot of people probably aren't familiar with Holmesburg prison itself, which is in Philadelphia. And I'd like to quickly read a passage from your book, just so people have a little bit of kind of foundational knowledge on what the place is. You wrote, designed by Wilson Brothers and Company, the 17-acre compound of Holmesburg prison was built in 1896 and originally consisted of six 16-foot barrel vaulted hallways with 450 cells, each measuring only eight by 18 feet. Four additional cell blocks were later constructed via prisoner labor to ameliorate overcrowding. The entire compound is enclosed on all four sides by concrete barricades as high as 35 feet above ground and another 12 feet beneath the surface, giving it the look of an impenetrable fortress straight out of the Middle Ages, which as an aside, I definitely would vouch for that is exactly what it looks like when you see it. Recreating the radial hub and spoke plan of Eastern State Penitentiary, which opened in 1829, Holmesburg also borrowed its Gothic revival style of imposing crenellated guard towers and a single large central gateway that limited possibilities of escape. Yet behind this grandiose medieval facade was a modern prison design philosophy popularized by the Quakers in the early 19th century. Prior to Eastern State, prisons were more communal, holding captives together rather than apart. So we're not going to be able to cover the entire history of Holmesburg here. And I think at some point I kind of thought about this as I did the episode, like there's so many stories that I think feed into it, like the prisoners that were essentially boiled alive in the Klondike and some of the riots, the murder of the warden and the deputy warden, if I recall correctly. But I think for our intents and purposes here, I want to focus on this because I feel like really a whole episode on the experiments is merited. What can you tell us about why Holmesburg was an ideal site for medical testing and Holmesburg itself. I would say that prisons today would still lend themselves to experimental conditions. And I would say that because here you have a controlled population. So one of the reasons why Eastern State Penitentiary, which then became the model for Holmesburg Prison and 500 other prisons around the world, was because of its modern style. It relied on this ideology or this thinking that prisoners, when you group them together, they will influence each other and build on each other's bad behavior. And so if you isolate them, then you prevent that. And then if you also make them work, um, there was this idea that, you know, work is honorable. Work could be a form of rehabilitation by giving the prisoner a sense of purpose and also by training him. And it was usually a him to become, again, a productive member of society. And so this was the logic behind separating prisoners and making them work. And so when I first went into Holmesburg, I was trying to figure out, you know, what about this space makes it ideal for scientific research? What is it about making prisoners work and isolating them from each other? What makes that good research conditions? Well, when I was working in the labs, we would use, of course, lab animals. We would have animal models to do our work. And we usually grew our animals in a vivarium. And if you go into a 
herbarium that supports lab work, you'll see rows and rows and rows of cages. These animals are fed the same diet. They are pretty much genetically similar to each other. They are living in the same conditions. And the work they perform is the one that they perform in the lab, which is they are subjects of experimentation. And so that's what made me think about the prison space as ideal for research conditions, because it is a highly surveilled and highly controlled population, which is what you need when you're doing experiments on live subjects. With that, let's talk then about Albert Kligman, who, uh, as you mentioned, is regarded as the father of dermatology. I found this University of Pennsylvania statement in 2021 on his legacy after his death in 2010. They wrote, Dr. Kligman made groundbreaking contributions to the field of dermatology. His scientific discoveries published in more than 1,000 research papers and in over 20 textbooks have benefited millions of people. They included the initial discovery of the effects of retinoic acid on acne, as well as seminal discoveries in our understanding and treatments of common disorders such as aging skin, seborrheic dermatitis, ringworm, and alopecia. But while Dr. Kligman's experiment protocols conformed to legal standards of the time, some of his work raised serious ethical concerns that should be addressed. So basically they're like, he did all this great stuff, but he also did some other stuff. What was the nature of the experiments that he did there? I think that's really funny, that comment about his work conforming to the legal standards of that time, because the standards were pretty much non-existent, right? He could do pretty much anything. There was no, he even acknowledged that when he began his work, there was no formal way of garnering informed consent. But a lot of his work were not therapeutic. So a lot of his work wasn't meant to possibly help the subjects of those experiments. So when we think of clinical trials today, we think of them as therapeutic. They're not really tested. We don't have a lot of research on the therapeutic effects of this treatment or this new drug. That's why it's called a clinical trial. We're trying to figure that out. But generally, you get subject populations from people who might benefit from this treatment or new drug. So cancer patients who are enrolled in new cancer treatments, for example, Right. But that wasn't what was happening at Holmesburg prison. You didn't have incarcerated populations with a set of pre-existing conditions that then might be helped by these experiments. And so these experiments were harmful from the very beginning because they weren't designed or they weren't made to benefit the subject pool. So, for example, Albert Klingman, he is most famous for his work on tretinoin or retinoic acid, which is today common ingredient in beauty products for treating acne or for wrinkles, photo aging, things like that. And his work on tretinoin first wasn't dealing at all with acne. He was trying to find a way of lightening skin. And he chose black prisoners precisely because they had a lot of melanin in their skin. And so he saw them as an ideal subject for testing out whether tretinoin can bleach or lighten white skin. Now, it might be the case that a tretinoin didn't do that. He had mixed it with other formulas like hydroquinone, which is a known bleaching agent. So hydroquinone was probably the thing that was bleaching the prisoner's skin. But that's an example. That's a, one of the major examples of the work that was done at Holmesburg Prison, where this was not meant to benefit medically the prisoners in, in any way. And this was Albert Kligman simply trying to find a new formula for skin and lightning. And that lightning was caused, if I'm reading correctly what you wrote, it was caused through cell damage. I mean, it, it was actively damaging their skin. And the reason that he was doing this, as you pointed out, I mean, it was on black prisoners because it was more readily apparent. But the end goal was to have something that would help white cosmetic problems. Yes, yes. The end goal was to treat photo aging spots or aging spots on white patients. And I should note that when 
Kligman was experimenting on prisoners with tretinoin, he was using it at doses far, far, far higher than what we today would use for skincare regimen, for example. So that's why it was very, very damaging on the skin of, of prisoners because they were being applied or this tretinoin formula was being applied at levels that were dangerous, that were going to damage the skin in significant ways. And so this is why you see prisoners with scars all over their bodies long after the experiments were performed long after they ended because this was permanent wounding. Right. And I thought one of the things that was bleakly amusing, I guess we could say, I mean, funny is not that there are a lot of words that I'm going to use in this that aren't maybe the exact right ones. He kind of fashioned himself as somebody who was like, oh, my gosh, this would be horrible if people used it to just lighten skin for Black people. We would never want to do that. That would be morally appalling. And yet he doesn't really seem to find it morally appalling that he's doing these tests that are really hurting people. Yeah, it's the lack of insight on his part is, is really disturbing in, in that sense. Sometimes when I read that in, in his article, I was thinking that is this a matter of control? Is this a way of sort of making himself look quote unquote, not racist in his time by saying that, you know, it would be an awful thing if the general black population would use his treatment to lighten their skin when he was doing precisely that coercively in, in the prison, forcing prisoners to lighten their skin. So I was thinking if this was a matter of control that he gets to decide who is going to be the beneficiary of his work right? Black people can help find this or help discover this treatment, but they can't ultimately benefit from it. And I also thought that there may be sort of an underlying fear in that kind of statement, the idea that Black people can use this treatment to pass as white. And so in a larger cultural context where white people were afraid of white passing Black folks, then that statement that he made also tracks or makes sense. Right. There were so many things that you had quoted him as saying in the book where I was like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe that this would just pass out of a human's mouth without any reflection. But then and getting back to your comment on the UPenn statement, even in reading that, it's like, oh, well, he did all this great stuff here, all the contributions he made. He might have had a yikes or two. You know, we're going to kind of distance ourselves and not name our programs after him anymore. But even then, it was this front facing like he did all these things that were beneficial. And the tests, they enrolled hundreds of the prison's predominantly black population in studies that, as you mentioned, determined the efficacy and safety of a wide variety of substances from common household products to chemical warfare agents. One of the other ones that I wanted to talk with you a little bit about is the patch test, which sounds incredibly painful. Ah, uh, yes, the patch tests, which for those patch tests, he was looking at how to determine the allergenicity and irritancy of irritants or allergens that kind of are considered weak. So how do you know how strong or weak an allergen is if it's already a weak allergen? Like how weak is it or how strong is it? Right. And so... If it's already established as a weak allergen, I was kind of confused why he would need to test this on thousands of prisoners. Like, how weak is it? And in those patch tests, he used allergens that were so weak that he had to then make them more harmful <laughs> in order to see the harm of a weak allergen. So it, it doesn't really make sense, right? To determine that something is a weak allergen, you make it more harmful just to see the harm that it can cause if you concentrate its application. And so in that patch test, he just kept applying these allergens, again, at far higher doses than they normally would to skin over and over and over again to elicit a reaction. And sometimes because that didn't work, what he would do is he would deliberately injure the skin first and then apply a weak allergen. So you can imagine 
how painful that was that you would pretty much scrape off the first layers of skin and then apply a chemical agent to see what the chemical agent would do to the skin. And some of the ways he damaged the skin first was he would he would use tape to sort of um, peel off the first layers of the skin. He would scratch the skin surface with a needle. And then eventually he landed on using sodium lauryl sulfate, which is, again, a common agent that we use in skincare products today. But again, a concentration is far lower today than was used in Kligman's experiments. But the sodium lauryl sulfate or SLS at the concentrations he used would damage the skin. And then he would layer on his test agents on top of that. Right. And what he's doing then in in some of these tests is he's sort of taping on patches of solvents or whatever it is that he's applying and testing for and leaving them on the prisoners for extended periods of time after he's damaged this skin, which, again, I mean, sounds absolutely nightmarish. And you also mentioned in the book that he made the solvents more severe for the black patients, basically to make the effects of the damage more visible to the researchers. So he's only using about 10% of white prisoners for his tests, but the black prisoners, he can't see as well what it's doing to their skin. So once again, he's amping up the potency so they cause even more damage. Yes, yes. And so even though this experiment, on the face of it, had nothing to do with race, really. Albert Kligman was not interested in questions about race. He wasn't asking, oh, do white subjects have different skin than black subjects do? That's not what he was establishing. And yet you could still see how racism was at play in his methods when he claimed that he just had trouble seeing injuries in black skin. If he replicated the study on white skin, oh my gosh, white skin became so red, it it oozed. So he decided to then make the experiment less harmful on white skin because he readily saw injury or harm on on white skin versus black skin. That is a long-standing sort of optics of pain, a racialized optics of pain in the history of medicine. This belief that black people are either immune to pain or they don't feel pain as much, or that when they can make complaints of pain, it's because they're malingering. This is a belief, a, a stereotype that was entrenched during slavery. And it kind of continues to this day in medicine and dermatology, especially. They are now reckoning with history, the field of dermatology, because they realize that a lot of what we know about human skin more generally is based on what we know about white skin. And so this means that we can underdiagnose cancer, for example, among Black people or in patients who have more melanin simply because we are accustomed to seeing cancer or other harmful phenomena on white skin. And it wasn't like he was trying to do this so that he could like improve the ability to detect damage in black patients. I mean, in a way, like when you look at this, obviously, okay, putting aside the whole absolute sort of moral abyss that it is for a second, it doesn't even really make a whole lot of sense. Like, why would you do experiments on people if you're saying, I can't really detect as well on this? Why would you do that? I mean, why wouldn't he use perhaps more white prisoners if the whole point was to see the effects that these solvents has? And he's saying, I can't detect them as well on the people that I'm using. Right, right. That's a good point. It's probably because of the fact that a majority of his subject pool was black. 80 to 90 percent of the prisoners at Holmesburg prison at this time were black. And so if he was going to enroll thousands of prisoners into this patch test exam, his starting subject population was already skewing towards black subjects. So that is probably why he ended up using black prisoners a lot for his experiments. And and of course, his total disregard for their pain, the fact that he was more sensitive or sympathetic to the pain of white prisoners, that also shows that he was looking at this predominantly Black captive population in terms of 
utility in terms of their use. He didn't talk about them as if they were human beings. He talked about them as if they were instruments. They were valuable scientifically only in their role or in their capacity for him to build or produce new knowledge from. Some of the other experiments that you described, you talked about one that was skin hardening experiment for the army. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Ah, yes. That was another SLS or sodium lauryl sulfate experiment. That was, that was a brief experiment. He was building off prior research where he saw that when he harmed the skin of prisoners with SLS, of course, the immune system of these prisoners would react to that. And one of the ways they do that or the immune response does that is the skin would harden, which is another way of saying that the skin would scar over. And so he was sort of dipping arms, limbs into SLS to see if he could damage the skin enough that it would begin this general scarring process, which he then called skin hardening. It really sounds like a lot of these, again, would involve a, quite a bit of, of pain and discomfort to the prisoners. The other one that really stood out, too, was testing with LSD. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the book focuses a lot on skin, so I didn't focus too much on the use of psychoactives in his work. But he was commissioned by the U.S. Army to find psychoactive drugs that would make subjects more apt to tell the truth. So these were psychoactives that were interesting to the U.S. Army because they could be used for interrogation of captured soldiers, for example. And the success of those experiments are negligible. It made uh, quite a few of the subjects psychotic for brief moments, and then would they would also cause some lasting mental health conditions. But yes, Kligman was receiving quite significant funding from the U.S. Army to do this work. And you mentioned that the data wasn't even all that useful. Like you, you said about prisoners would take off the patches for the patch test, which they kind of viewed as trickery or they're being duplicitous or something. But it's probably because they were incredibly painful. Why was the data not really useful in many cases? Now, this is the interesting part of the research, right? Because you would, again, you know, to have such a highly controlled and surveilled population, those are ideal conditions for doing experimental work. But then you have prisoners sort of sabotaging the experiments. And it shows that the captive population didn't just willingly go into these experiments, but they demonstrated their own forms of agency by peeling the patches off when technicians and researchers weren't looking. And so when they did that, the results from those experiments were not really accurate because the researchers and technicians couldn't control the prisoners all the time, couldn't watch them all the time. So if the prisoners decided to wipe off chemical agents that were placed onto their skin, they could do that. But what's significant is that at least from what I saw, they were prisoners were uh, taking off their patches because they were in pain, because they were making these complaints about pain to researchers and technicians and their complaints were ignored. And so they took off the patches themselves because they sought to alleviate their own pain, which was being set aside by those who were giving it to them. Why would prisoners participate in tests like this in the first place? Some of the reasons that the prisoners themselves gave this was at Holmesburg and at other prisons where these research programs were taking place. The main reason was for money. There wasn't a lot of opportunities for earning a living inside a prison. And one of the ways that prisoners could do that was to join these medical experiments. At Holmesburg, 75% roughly of the prisoners there 
were detentioners. They weren't found guilty on anything yet. They were simply in prison because they couldn't afford bail. And so one of the key reasons for joining the experiments was to raise funds for bail money. Another reason given is that prison existence is monotonous. And so joining experiments could be another way of breaking the monotony of prisons. That monotony really has significant mental health effects. And so you have to imagine the level of desperation that prisoners come to that they would subject themselves bodily, sometimes psychically, to these experiments in order to break that monotony. And another one was a way of mitigating violence. So when you join experiments, you are surrounded by researchers and technicians. Sometimes you might be housed in a different part of the prison that could be considered safer. And so joining experiments is another way of sort of protecting oneself in a very violent setting. And you kind of make the point that these incentives are inherently unethical because of those factors that you're talking about. Like, How would you describe to somebody who's listening to this? What, why is it that it's inherently unethical? It's inherently unethical because it's, it's coercive. You have to wonder if prisoners would do this if they felt safe. Would prisoners join these experiments if they could find labor elsewhere inside the prisons that would pay them as much? They could earn a lot more uh, joining experiments than, say, working at a stamping factory inside of a prison. And so that is a form of coercion because you, uh, someone has to join an experiment willingly. But if they're joining it to escape some other desperate condition, that is undue influence on their decision making. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how the test ended and the aftermath and repercussions of this. Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's A-D-M-I-N at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. We're back. And in this segment, I'd like to talk a little bit about how the tests came to an end. Now, these tests started in the 1950s. When did they end and what brought that about? They ended in the early 1970s. This was brought about by the work of our first federal task force on bioethics that was established in 1974. But even before the work of this task force got started, there was already this growing public outcry 
against medical research in prisons because, again, you know, they hearken back to Nazi war crimes. And so that was still very much present history, top of mind among medical ethicists, theologians, anyone who was interested in, in, in bioethics at this time, this was very much present in their mind. So I'd also like to signpost for your listeners the work of Jessica Mitford, who wrote Kind and Unusual Punishment, The Prison Business, which addressed precisely the ethics of medical experimentations in prisons. And there she quotes one physician as saying that prisoners were being used because they were cheaper than chimpanzees. So prisoners were considered a cost-effective means of determining the potency and health risks of new drugs and um, other treatments. And so her work really, really did a lot of consciousness raising around this issue to the point that it helped catalyze a congressional hearing on this issue precisely. And so by the time our first federal task force on bioethics came together to draft what we would now call the Belmont Report, which is an ethics guideline on uh, clinical research, by the time they got together to do their own research on medical abuses, we were already seeing a downward trend in research in prisons. And you mentioned that at this point, no other European country is experimenting on captive populations, and they kind of find it horrific that the U.S. is. It also, uh, according to your book, it wasn't just the medical ethics questions that were starting to come up, but even a little before that, there was a report that argued that Kligman's research was, quote, a key contributor to the prevalence of rape and assault. How did that work? Ah, uh, yes, yes. So rape and sexual assault is prevalent in prison existence more generally. It was true then and it is true now. So there is something about imprisonment, incarceration, the dehumanizing practices of caging human beings that leads to rape and sexual assault in prisons. But in Holmesburg's case, around the time that Kligman was doing his work, this report, it was called the Davis Report, commissioned by the city of Philadelphia, precisely to address the rape and sexual assaults in prisons uh, across the city. They found in Holmesburg Prison that there was this significant power imbalance being created among the prisoners. Some of the prisoners became gatekeepers to accessing research. So if some prisoners wanted to participate in the research in order to get more money, they would have to go through these gatekeepers, for example or prisoner uh, participants in research, they would be earning significantly more money than other prisoners who were not participating. And so this power imbalance that was founded on economic imbalance, this was creating a situation where prisoners with more power would use that. They would leverage the money that they had to coerce other prisoners into uh, sexual acts. In the commission inquiry, some of the prisoners argued that they wanted the experiments to continue. And I'm presuming that that was because they were getting paid so well. They did have the sort of safer spaces, relatively speaking, of the laboratories to be in. Why would you say that some of them would want them to continue? It makes sense when you are in survival mode, right? And that is what prison existence is. It is pure survival mode. A lot of the decisions that one would make while incarcerated would be made in the context of desperation. And so if you don't have any good choices in prisons when it comes to quality of life or well-being, then you choose what you think would help you survive this very bleak and soul-crushing, soul-deadening context. And so if a prisoner only has the option of making a few cents a day to work at a stamping factory versus a few dollars a day uh, being a participant in one of these research experiments, you can imagine the the choices that one would make if they really needed that money. One of the really interesting parallels that I thought you brought up was you argued in a way the commission itself was kind of exploitative and that it didn't really protect the prisoners who testified from the risk and repercussions that they faced. 
Ah, yes, yes. This was surprising because I had found a letter to the commission, this federal task force, written by a prisoner incarcerated at a state prison in Michigan. And his letter drew my attention to this ethical problem that the commission itself was embroiled in. And in his letter, he told the commission that during their visit, he was very honest, truthful about the prison experiments that were happening at this prison, that he was hoping he would be protected for being honest. And he was not. Prison officials got word of his interview with the commission, and then they put him in solitary confinement and then moved him several hundred miles away to a new prison so that his family couldn't visit him as frequently. And so in this letter, he's telling the commission, you know, you told me that you would protect me if I was honest with you. So I was honest with you and you haven't protected me. And the commission responded back saying like, oh, you're in solitary confinement because of your own bad behavior. It's not because you talk to us, right? And this made me realize the extent of control inside a prison and how ignorant this commission is of that control, that they are themselves, these bioethicists, in positions of power in relation to the prisoners. And much like the scientists they sought to regulate, they went into this prison, interviewed prisoners, pretty much got data from them in the same way scientists did. And then they kind of just left. They formulated guidelines and they didn't think back about the conditions of precarity that their research sort of replicated when they went into the prison. Right. I mean, you think about it, a prisoner who is going and speaking to a commission like this is then going to be going back into the exact same prison after that with the same administration, the same guards, the same other prisoners, the same research staff. And all of these people are going to be probably pretty pissed that they may have done that. So the people that were saying they wanted the experiments to continue, you can't even really necessarily trust that aspect. There was another prisoner that you talked about who wanted to put his fingerprints on the letter that he sent to the commission so that they wouldn't switch him out with another prisoner. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. This is another one of those those letters that was sent to the commission. Sort of this one was begging for an audience. And he did put his fingerprints on his letter to the commission because he was afraid that prison officials would switch him out with another prisoner and say, oh, this is the guy. Interview this guy. Right. And so this prisoner sent his fingerprints to the commission saying, like, you know, here are my fingerprints. When you meet with me or you meet with somebody else, check the fingerprints to make sure that you're actually meeting with me and not another prisoner posing as me. And so this is, again, another one of those examples where these bioethics experts were entering a context full of examples or cases or instances where their work could be sabotaged. Like the prisoners are telling them themselves, like, this is how your work could be sabotaged. Now, I don't know if the commission ever responded to this particular letter or how they would responded to it. But I think it is very interesting that the commission itself in their final report didn't really talk about that, all the ways that they could have, that prison officials could have undermined their work and make it seem as if experiments in prisons were actually not that bad, that the prisoners really wanted them, that these horror stories that they read about are few and, and far between. And I think another thing to note is that the commission said that these are actually the standard of prison research, right? The commission admitted that if these prisons are, are particularly bad, particularly unethical, the conditions are particularly horrific, that is still better than your average prison doing this work. Right. That really stood out when I was reading about this because it was like, yeah, they're doing research on this and they're doing it in some of the same unethical ways where they're not really taking into consideration the risks that they're posing to the people by doing it. And they don't really seem particularly concerned with it. You said that they were ignorant of it, but I, I mean, I think I would even go a step further to the point where it's like they, they really didn't seem to care. In a way, the uh, the prisoners were disposable for the cause of their research as well, which, like I said, I just I, that, that parallel really struck me. Quigman claimed that the test that he did did no lasting damage. Do you agree with that? 
Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, a lot of these subjects were permanently scarred, scarred for life. So literally carrying the history of their experiments on their skin. And that's just physical damage, right? We add on top of that the psychic, the mental damage that medical abuse can play. I think the claim that it had no lasting damage again is more telling of Kligman and his associates' lack of empathy. That again, they didn't really see the captives as full human beings who could be very much harmed by what they were doing, simply talking about them as if they were instruments. Of course. I mean, he doesn't want to think about the fact that there's any lasting damage, so there isn't. And the prisoners brought lawsuits against Kligman, UPenn, the city of Philadelphia, Dow Chemicals, and Johnson & Johnson for studies with infectious diseases, psychotropic drugs, radiation, the highly toxic pollutant dioxin. How'd that go? I suppose how you would expect, <laughs> um, which is to say that it didn't go very well for the prisoners. That lawsuit was dismissed and then Kligman went on to be awarded with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the College of Physicians. And so accountability has yet to take place, not only at Holmesburg, but at all other sites where prison experimentation was occurring. And when the College of Physicians presented him with that award, you noted that protesters, including former inmates, were there to give him the Dr. Mengele Award. Yes, which is again referring back to Nazi experiments at concentration camps. And I think it is telling that the former prisoners chose Dr. Mengele because Dr. Mengele escaped. He never had to face his crimes either. He was never caught. And so the fact that reparations for victims and survivors of medical abuse in, in prisons have yet to take place. I think it shows it's how appropriately named that award is, Dr. Mengele Award. So there weren't really any consequences for Kligman ever, were there? I mean, he died in uh, 2010, uh, one presumes at a ripe old age. Uh, I mean, was there really any anything that called his ethics into question aside from this little statement on the UPenn website? Not really. There's a lot of virtue signaling, right? But I suppose the first step, which I'm very much heartened by, is greater discussion in his field of dermatology about the ethics of his work and about the ethics of dermatology more broadly. There is a greater call to expand our understanding of skin and skin conditions beyond the model of whiteness that has grounded that field for a long time now. But besides that, there, there isn't uh, fam victims and families have not received any recompense at all. Tretinoin and retinoic acid and, and retinol, the use of retinol. That's so, you know, the beauty industry, the cosmetic industry is a multi-billion dollar globally. We could, we could pay recompense to these victims and, and, and their families, but that hasn't taken place. We had mentioned that you wanted to talk about reparations for captive populations. What do you see that being like? I think it's very hard to imagine it once reparations is achieved 100%, right? But there are steps. And one of the first steps is equitable access to care and to equitable access to quality care. So this is how I explain it to my students in the classroom. As I go back to James Marion Sims' gynecological experiments on slave women, particularly Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy. And he is considered the father of modern gynecology based on these experiments where he performed surgeries, gynecological surgeries on slave women. He didn't use any uh, anesthesia, even though it was available at the time. And so when we think about reparations for Anarka, Betsy, Lucy, among others, he experimented on today, we're not going to go and say things like, well, we're just going to get rid of gynecology, right? We're not going to say like, nobody get gynecological treatments or diagnosis or anything like that, because that would harm a lot of people. It would, it could kill a lot of people. And so that should show you how immense our responsibility is 
to those slave women who helped found modern gynecology through their bodies, right? So what does reparations look like for them? We owe them so much. And so one of the ways we can do that is to expand this care, to make it more equitable. Because even though modern gynecology was founded through the body of enslaved women, Black women today are more likely to be diagnosed at later stages of cervical cancer precisely because of problems of access. And if it is not a problem of access, precisely because of pervasive medical misinformation that Black people don't feel pain as much. So if they come in with complaints of pain, it's probably just it's in their heads or they're malingering. And so expanding care is a first step to that, to reparations. I I don't really know any stats about the gynecology industry, but certainly the cosmetic industry makes so much money that doesn't exactly seem like it would be outside the realistic scope of their finances. Yes, we know that Albert Klugman founded his own pharmaceutical company soon after he began research at Holmesburg called Ivy Pharmaceuticals. And Holmesburg was literally Ivy Pharmaceuticals. That was the site of Ivy Pharmaceuticals. And so he made a lot of money with his work. And so Another way of thinking about accountability at a very local level is to think about redistributing that wealth to the victims and survivors of of his research. Right. But kind of what you were talking about a minute ago, I think that's a really interesting idea, too, in that it's not just the specific companies that benefited off of it. And it's not just something that's like, here, give some people some money. It's an idea of there being kind of a knowledge debt that requires a greater ethical commitment from the industry than just saying, okay, well, we're not going to do that again, but also saying, okay, well, you know, we have to look at the populations that we exploited to begin with and try and think about what are we doing to actually help them currently. Yes, I actually like that phrase that you said, knowledge debt, because they we have to think of the victims and survivors of medical abuse as also co-producers, co-creators of knowledge and should be honored and, and should be given their due. And so it is very important that when we, when we think about reparations in this context to, again, think about expanding care, expanding the benefits of these experiments to the populations who for so long served as the subjects of experimentation. What would you say has changed as a result of the experiments at Holmesburg, aside from obviously the um, knowledge that the dermatology industry extracted from it? What would you say changed societally? Definitely, we are a society that is more attuned to cases of medical abuse, to cases of exploitation in clinical research trials. I mean, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, when we began clinical trials on the vaccine, there was discussion on making sure that the subject population was diverse Right. But there was also a lot of discussion about medical exploitation again of vulnerable populations. So there was a lot of uh, discussion about how vulnerable populations uh, feared becoming involved with these experiments or even getting the vaccine itself. This is what centuries of medical abuse on vulnerable populations has led us to, is what Harriet Washington called theatrophobia or fear of doctors. And so you see vulnerable populations being more afraid to trust experts for that reason. But you also see a greater discussion of what ethical clinical research looks like. You also brought up the offshoring of experimentation. Mm -hmm. Could you describe that a little? Yes. I mean, the offshoring of medical experiments, this means that we are uh, transnational companies or American pharmaceuticals are conducting their clinical trials, very early phase clinical trials in other countries, exporting that labor, that research to other countries. And this really took off in the 90s. But we already, again, saw this gradual increase of offshoring these clinical trials during the 70s, precisely around 
around the time that we de facto decided not to perform those experiments in prisons again. In fact, the uh, Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Association sort of acknowledged as much that they're, they're going to have to find a population elsewhere in the world if they can't use uh, prisoners in, in the United States. And so that's what we're doing now. Um, anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of our phase one clinical trials are offshore to other countries. A lot of them are uh, post-colonial countries, countries in the global south, countries that have lower GDPs, low income, or if they're countries like China or, or Russia, they tend to be in communities that are less protected. You also talked in your book a bit about ways people have approached the subject of the experiments at Holmesburg through art and culture afterwards, including me. And I get the sense that you have some mixed feelings about it. Well, one of the reasons why this became very interesting to me, why I started to look at the work of artists and not just scientists, is how the artists talk about the history of Holmesburg. What is their approach to this history versus the approach of, of, of scientists? You know, how do they look at this? How do they contribute to our remembering or cultural memory of what happened at Holmesburg? And there's this ambivalence in my feeling towards it. On one hand, there's a sense in which, again, I'm thinking about accountability and reparations and being reflective or, and or more aware of our position as creators when we go into a space that we do not replicate sort of the exploitative practices that other creators have done in the past. But at the same time, if you're not a prisoner and you're entering that space, you are automatically in a position of power in relation to the people who were once caged in that space. I do appreciate these representations, though, because they do, again, expand our archive about that space. We do get a different way of looking at Holmesburg Prison, a different way of, of understanding it. But as I wrote in the book, there are creators, particularly, you know, popular media. There was sort of a, a television show focusing on ghost stories that went into the prison and pretty much kind of, in my opinion, fetishized the history of pain in that prison. Instead of complicating our understanding of the prison or building on it, instead of sort of helping to develop a sympathetic relationship to the human beings once caged in that place. The television show, the ghost stories only ended up sort of dehumanizing them further. And I think that is different from um, what other artists did. So you and the an artist like Patricia Gomez and Maria Jesus Gonzalez, you went in there and took representations of the place, created art and made commentary about the space and its history of abuse, trying to sort of get the viewer or the spectator to be in a closer relationship to the prisoners who were once held there. And I think that is a very different goal than popular media that seeks to create ghost stories that kind of make Holmesburg prison a place for kind of entertainment and fun instead of really realizing that this, this was a place that was very, very exploitative and we need to honor the people who were subject to that exploitation. I agree with you. I mean, I felt like the part about the ghost hunting show, and certainly I'm not here to throw stones at other people in my podcast, but it was really crass, I would say, to say the least, in terms of kind of this assumption that everybody there is evil and they're all going to be these evil spirits and I'm going to talk to you like I'm a warden or a guard at the prison and uh, hopefully that'll bring you out. I mean, I could probably do a whole episode on my feelings about ghost hunting and the representation of ruins through sort of the supernatural medium, turning it into a sort of haunted house or ghost story. These places that are very real, that had very real people involved in them. I think with the work that I do, and I would say I, I'm not one to judge the efficacy of it in the end, really am I? But I do think that I kind of started this with a view of historical preservation, architectural photography, giving people a sense of space of places that are gone, 
looking at stories of places that are themselves marginalized and often then through that expanding into the people that were there that typically are too. I mean, it was uh, it was the state hospitals and asylums really that got me kind of onto the subject. Having said that though, I think really the purpose of the podcast in essence is to acknowledge the fact that like I can't tell all of these stories better than some other people can. It's sort of to acknowledge that other people are in a better position to explain the stories of these places than I am and to give voice to them rather than trying to sort of clunkily assume that I am the best expert on all of those. And that's sort of hope that it will be a companion piece to say like the the gallery of Holmesburg, for example, so that when people look at the gallery, they also have a podcast there where they can say, oh, okay, I can learn more about this. And from somebody who knows the subject better than Matthew, which, um, you know, hopefully will serve to continue that, I guess. You said that you had some questions for me when we talked on the phone earlier. Oh, yes, yes. I was surprised to learn that Holmesburg was still around when I went and visited it, which was in 2014. I believe that was the first time I I went and saw it, knowing that it had been decommissioned since 2002, I believe. And when I first went in there, I didn't know what I was looking at, honestly. I thought I was all like, I'm going to go to the space and I'm going to see science happening in these spaces. Like this was built to do this kind of research. But then it was just this ruin and I couldn't make make sense of it. And I was getting all these stories about ghosts. I was getting all of these stories about past riots, uh, things like that. And so I was wondering, you know, when you first went into Holmesburg, what was your impression of it? And what led you to take the pictures that you did of it? Well, I guess one of the things that, you know, I'll just be honest about my work and people can judge me for it or not. Usually it's a matter of, can I get access to a place? And because I'm one person and I'm doing 5,000 things at any given point in time, and I'm, I'm not necessarily doing them well because I'm, I'm so overstretched. Like with Holmesburg, for example, it wasn't like I got to do a ton of research on it before I went in. So the first time that I went there, it was kind of just like, it's, it's an Eastern state penitentiary like prison. But, you know, the opportunity to go back, I think, really gave me a different sense of the building. And, you know, first of all, you can tell when you go in that it's a bad place. Uh, I think prisons in particular really, really give off that sense a lot more than perhaps any other type of place where you're just, I think they're built for oppression. You know, they're built Mm -hmm. for containment and misery. And you can sense that kind of when you go in. But yeah, I mean, when when I first went there, I didn't necessarily know about all the experiments. And that was something that I learned afterwards. And I still think my approach is kind of to, again, like document, you know, just to provide a really thorough document of the place. And in that, obviously, I'm looking at the architecture and the space, but then, you know, like the little things like the prisoner collages and some of the artwork that they had on the walls. But whether that adequately encompasses it or addresses it, I think is probably up to a person who's looking at it. I don't necessarily know if I nailed that or not. My hope is that people will be interested in the subject of abandoned buildings because people just have that natural curiosity. And then they'll go down the wormhole and realize that there's this whole history there that they weren't familiar with and walk away with maybe a little more understanding and and, uh, hopefully awareness of some of the awful things that went on in the places. That sort of answer your question. I'm not sure if I just rambled and said a bunch of stuff, but didn't really address what you were asking. No, no, it was good. It was good. When I was looking through your photographs, it actually helped me make sense of of the prison space because I went there, I took my own pictures, but I think because it was such a dilapidated space, it kind of, I couldn't make sense of it. And I guess that's, that's the draw of ruin sometimes, right? That you, it, it kind of challenges our capacity for meaning making because here is this structure that doesn't do anything anymore. So when I looked at your photographs, I saw one of the things that really struck out to me was the individual cells that you took uh, pictures of. And there were a lot of, of these cells and the setting in each one would be different, right? Each cell had its own unique uh, manifestation 
of ruin inside of it. But I saw that kind of like the structure of the cell, the background, everything, it stayed the same across the photographs you took. And that sort of brought me back to the idea of, oh, that's right. This the, the architecture of a prison is very, very repetitious. And it has to be repetitious because it's one of the most efficient ways to cage live things, right? Uh, the cells are the exact same shape, the exact same size, and you you multiply that across a building and you have a, a vivarium. And so I think that that was one of the things that drew me to, to your work is that there was this repetition that I was able to see in your photographs that I couldn't see when I was there in person, simply because the place was so big, it was very massive, and also because it was such in, in, in a state of disrepair. One of the things that really does stick out in prisons in particular is that, you know, you've got the hallways, you've got the cells, you might have a guard station or something like that, but visually it does get repetitive. So I don't know if you're familiar with Burnt and Hilla Besher, but there are these photographers that would go around to industrial buildings that often had very similar structures and they would do these grids of similar looking places. And I feel like when you do that, of course, the first thing that you see is, oh, these all look similar. But then I think, you know, you start looking for, well, like, what are the different and all of these. And, and certainly in Holmesburg, those differences are the traces of the people who had been there. And that's that's kind of the important element, I suppose, if you're not just looking at something as a structure, but a structure that was impacted by the people there and that you want to have some sort of their presence to, even though they are not technically present anymore. Yes, yes, I really like that. That even in this architecture that you know, where faces uh, duplicate themselves over and over again, you see the unique imprints of the human beings there. That even in this place that sought to hide them from the rest of society and dehumanize them, they found a way to individualize themselves and make themselves present in a space like that. So as we wrap up here, do you have any final call to action for people that are listening to this or anything that you'd like them to take away? from it, from both the book and the discussion? I would say as an academic, uh, one, you know, I always encourage my students. So I will encourage people in general to know their history, right? To whatever it is they're interested in, to know the history of that, to be attuned to the invisible voices that are not part of official history, who is being pushed out of a history, who is being celebrated and whose expense. And I think in this ongoing pandemic specifically to pay attention to issues of equity and care and to health disparities, because even though the book is, you know, specifically about Holmesburg prison, and even though it does uh, contextualize it in a longer history of uh, medical experiments conducted on uh, captive populations, it is ultimately talking about uh, health inequities, how we come to them, what our responsibilities are to each other in order to overcome them. That's terrific. I mean, I, <laughs> very, very well said, I think, and, and definitely something that even as like I worked in mental health before my life as a photographer, really, that that became what I did permanently. But, you know, when you work in the mental health field, it's not like they necessarily explain to you what the history of the asylums are or the state schools or things like that. I mean, that's kind of the, uh, the part when you're learning about the subject, you hear a lot about the theory, but not about the uh, kind of the guts of what it is that people people did and what mistakes they had and who they took advantage of. And again, I mean, I, I think that's incredibly important. And also, again, I'd like to just congratulate you on a very thorough, well-researched and haunting book. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, this has been a great discussion. And again, as always, I'm, I'm just really grateful that I'm able to share this work to other people. I, I'm grateful that you took the time to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please take a moment to follow the podcast and share it with your friends. You can order Dr. Vespiris's book, Skin Theory, Visual Culture and the Postwar Prison Laboratory at your bookstore of choice if you'd like to learn more. Thanks for listening. It's an honor to be able to share these stories with you. And I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.